Why am I showing you that clip? To me, it shows how inbuilt is our capacity to judge each other. How easy it is to put ourselves down when we compare ourselves to others. How money is so intertwined in our thinking. If you define yourself by stuff, you will feel good. When you have lots of stuff, you're happy. When you don't have stuff, you're sad. And that's when anxiety creeps in. You then begin to live by the if-only theory. If only I had a better car, if only I had a better house, if only I had a better job. Guess what? You do get a better car. Three years down the line, it breaks down. Even worse, your neighbour gets the new model. This inevitably leads to anxiety and frustration because we compare ourselves too much to each other. We look down on people. Sometimes we look up to people who don't need looking up to because their lives under closer inspection are not worth looking at. But we make the mistake all the time of comparing ourselves to each other. Okay, so, Matthew 6. Now, there's probably no point in reading your Bible because I, I haven't changed anything, but I've done it differently. So bear with me. You can look at your Bible. I'm, I'm using the English Standard Version, but I'm going off piece to other versions as well. So, Matthew 6, 19. Do not lay up for yourself treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. So, do not lay up is underlined because it's a command. It's not a suggestion. It's saying, don't do it. And then, next verse, but lay up for yourself treasures in heaven. Again, underlined. Do this. Lay up for yourself treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will also be. Now the message reads, the place where your treasure is, is the place you will most want to be and where you will end up being. Next verse, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, I love the J.B. Phillips version of the New Testament. And he says here, if your eye is evil, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light is darkness, how great is the darkness? The message reads, if you live squinty-eyed in greed and distrust, your body is a dank cellar. If you pull the blinds on your windows, what a dark life you will have. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Nathi goes on to say something about that in 1 Timothy 6 verse 10. He says, For loving money leads to all kinds of evil, and some men in the struggle to be rich 
have lost their faith and caused themselves untold agonies of mind. But we're not saying money is bad, it's the priority. Therefore, I tell you, again, an instruction. Tell you what? Now, up there, anxious is mentioned a number of times, and I've numbered them so we keep count, okay? So, therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet Heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to his lifespan? Why are you so anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field. How they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of those. Now hold that thought. I've gone. Yes? No, I'm back. Even Solomon... Going? I'll come back to that. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore be not anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? What shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. So, anxious mentioned six times in ten verses. What is Jesus saying? Don't be anxious. Bear with me one minute. Okay, going back to Solomon and the lilies. Can we have the picture of the lily, please? I've googled lily at the time of Jesus, and that's what it looks like. Okay? Now, as I was preparing this, I was reading through Kings. 1 Kings 10 paints a different picture. Solomon was the son of David... Solomon was tasked with building the temple. He took seven years to build the temple and 13 years to build his own house. He builds an ivory throne having six steps and covers the whole thing with gold. In one year, he receives 666 talents of gold. In today's money, that's about 182 million pounds. When the Queen of Sheba turns up, she gives him 120 talents of gold, roughly 33 million pounds. All of the cups in the palace are made of gold. The Queen even notices and comments on the clothing not of Solomon, but of his servants, 
So, do you seriously think that when he gets the message, the Queen of Sheba is coming to, to visit him, that he asks one of his aides to go down to George in Asda and get something smart? There is absolutely no chance. What is Jesus saying about Solomon is outshone by the lily of the field? Pretty as it is, what Jesus, I think, is saying is that I see things differently. I place my value in different things. That is why in Mark 12, the little old lady throwing the two coins into the offering box, he sees that. There was probably a rich man throwing a big bag of money in but he doesn't comment about that because he sees things differently. That is why he spoke to the woman of Samaria. He saw in her something that no one else had recognized. She had a history. Boy, did she have a history. She was a, a virtual outcast in the town. But she became the first evangelist in Samaria. She brought virtually the whole town to hear Jesus speak because Jesus saw something in her. Also, he saw the potential, not the past. Satan always takes us back to the past. He wants us to forget about the future Go back to when you messed up, when you fouled up. Zacchaeus, before Jesus came along, everybody thought Zacchaeus had made it. He was rich, powerful, had the protection of the Roman masters, but in one short moment of salvation, Zacchaeus realizes that money is not important. The Jews hated Zacchaeus. He was a tax collector. But Jesus saw potential. I say again, Jesus sees things differently to us. Sorry a minute. So the next, yes. Oh, well done. Thank you. So I, you see what I'm trying to say is that Jesus sees things we judge people by the appearance, by the outside, but God sees differently. So as I wrote this, I felt prompted to highlight this for some people who are here today. Jesus sees things differently. Jesus sees our future, not our past. Our potential, not our failures. Also, you need to reject the things said over you Remember this, this video clip? Poor little Ronnie Corbett. Everybody looked down to him. They'd all said words. You don't amount to much. You're not important. He even says, I know my place. And Satan tries to put you in his place. God says, come to my place. So the way we see worth is often so tied up with money, power, and position. 
If two men come together and start talking and they don't know each other, one of the first things they start talking about is what do you do? Where do you get your value? Where do you get your self-esteem? They maybe talk about golf and, and brag about their handicap and things, but Jesus looks past all that. One of the most significant verses in the whole of the Old Testament is 1 Samuel 16, verse 7. God sees the heart. Seven guys lined up. The prophet has to anoint one as king to, to um, succeed Saul. Big lads, strong lads. A little runt comes along. God says, he's got my heart. Okay, so that was just the introduction. Anxiety, slide seven. Anxiety is defined in the mind and body, sorry, anxiety in the mind and body's reaction to stressful, dangerous, or unfamiliar, unfamiliar situations. It's the sense of unease, distress, or dread you feel. In the 8th century BC, there was a king called Uzziah. He reigned for 52 years. He wasn't a particularly good king, but they had peace. Isaiah also lived at that time. Uzziah dies. And then Isaiah 6, he writes this. As he ponders, who's going, what's going to happen next? Who's going to conquer the nation? Who's going to, what is going to happen to the people? Isaiah writes this. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord on a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. What on earth does he mean by that? What does God say to him through that? I think it was this. Uzziah's throne is empty. Mine is not. Uzziah's reign has ended. My reign will never end. Uzziah's voice, voice was silent, but mine is not. Mine is strong. I am alive, on the throne, and worthy of your praise. So God calmed Uzziah's fears, not by removing the problem, but by revealing his divine power and presence. Next slide, please. I love the writings of Max Lucado. I think he's an excellent communicator. He just pitches it at my level. So he's, he writes, your challenge is not your challenge. Your challenge is the way that you think about your challenge. Put another way, your problem is not your problem. It's the way you look at it. Proverbs 4 verse 23 says, Be careful what you think, because your thoughts run your life. Anne said earlier, she loves to fix things. We all do that. We love to fix things. 
A mum just loves to fix her kids' lives. But we can't. Stand back and let God. Perfect example. Jesus has been preaching all day. It's in Mark 8. This is the 4,000. So that's the second time, okay, that he's fed. Preaching all day, the multitude are starving. The disciples sidle up to him and say, how are we going to feed them? And he says the, the words they dread, you feed them. So they immediately run to Judas and they say, how much have we got in the kitty? And he says, nothing. And then they look around and said, even if we did have money, there aren't any shops. And even if there were shops, there wouldn't be enough in the shops to feed 4,000 people. Remember, they'd seen him do this before. This was not new territory, but they forgot to ask Jesus. I love the, the writings and the speeches by John Wimber. He has a wonderful phrase. He often feels a day late and a dollar short. He never feels up to it. He never feels ready, just like I was before down there. I know how he feels. Sadly, I am a half-empty guy. My wonderful wife sat down there is not a half-full. She's a three-quarters-full girl. It, I don't want to be like that, but it's just the way I am. So women have their time of the month, but so do I. It's when the Tesco card, credit card bill hits the, the mat. There is a phrase that J.B. Phillips uses that sends a chill up my spine. I highlighted it. Two words, little faith. It would be so nice if it was only used once, but alas, it's not. It's five times in all, Matthew 8, 14, 16, and 17. Matthew 14, Peter steps out of the boat and walks on the water. Whilst looking at Jesus, he's fine. He's above the, the water. But when he looks at the fury of the wind, he sinks. Jesus says to him, what made you lose your nerve like that? Answer, he took his eyes off Jesus and looked at the problem. Matthew 16, Jesus is telling the disciples about his upcoming death. Peter tries to stop him. You can't do that. You can't, you can't be serious. Jesus responds this. Out of my way, Satan. Peter, you stand right in my path when you look at things from man's point of view and not from God's. In Matthew 18, the disciples come to Jesus asking who is the greatest in the kingdom? Again, back to the video clip. Who's the top gun? They've been with him for a couple of years, but still they hadn't seen it. Jesus responds, unless you change your whole outlook, you will never enter the kingdom of God. In each of these cases, the disciples took their eyes off Jesus. So what makes you anxious? Cost of living, health, job security. 
There's lots of things. So what is the cure? John 15, 4, verse 10. Next slide, please. Oh, yeah, wow. This is impressive. Thank you. John 15, 4, verse 10. Jesus says, I'm the real vine. In seven verses, Jesus uses the word abide ten times. Seven verses, ten times. Do you think he's trying to make a point? So, what he's saying is, I want you to be at home with me. I want you to be comfortable with me. I want you to feel safe with me. The standard picture of home is being comfortable, being safe. I know it's not consistent to everybody. I know here that people have lost their homes. But that is the analogy that God is saying, be at home with me, be comfortable, feel safe. So, next slide. Our assignment is not to be fruitful, but to be faithful. The secret to fruit-bearing and anxiety-free living is less about doing and more about abiding. Our primary goal is not to bear fruit, but to stay attached to, to hold the hand of the one who will never let go. Fruitfulness is a byproduct of our closeness to Jesus. Now, important as this concept is, it's not your get-out-of-jail card. You cannot just say, I'm abiding in Christ, without obeying and trusting him. Next slide. If you allow anxiety to grow, faith will diminish. Alternatively, choose faith and anxiety will diminish. A grandfather was once telling his grandson a story. And what he was saying was that inside of you there are two wolves. And the little boy said, are they fighting? He said, yes. He said, who wins? He said, the one you feed. Anxiety, faith. Which one do you feed? You feed faith and anxiety goes down. Feed anxiety and faith goes down. So that's my attempt at explaining anxiety. Treasure. Verse 19 refers to treasures on earth, which obviously relate to money and probably power and position. Jesus is very clear that there is nothing wrong with money until it becomes your master. Matthew 19, the rich young ruler, he comes to Jesus and said, Good master, what do I need to inherit life? eternal life. I think in one version it says, and Jesus loved him. Jesus knows instinctively because he sees that the problem is that this guy values money far more than anything else. He doesn't say it to anyone else. 
just this one guy, just this one time, he says, sell everything you have and follow me. And the guy goes away because money is the master. You cannot serve God, you cannot serve money, you have to choose one or the other. But what are treasures in heaven? Matthew 25 is the parable of the talents. All I want to say there is that the significant phrase coming out of that is that God says, well done, my good and faithful servant. So the significant thing is that God values faithfulness above ability. Going back to the clip again, we all look at other people and say how good they are at something, and we put ourselves down. Um, <clears throat> for my wife's horror, I'm going to add it now. Um, at our old church, we had a guy called Marty Ruddock. He's preached here. He is the most, in some ways, disorganized, chaotic man that you would ever meet. I've seen him turn up to preach and he would reach in his pocket and he would pull out an old envelope. And there would be a few notes, a couple of arrows, and he would speak fluently for 25 minutes. And the whole place would come forward for prayer. He would be challenged and blessed. I used to think, God, what is, what is that? Why, why can't I do that? It's not about ability. It's about faithfulness. One of my heroes of this church is Alistair Smith. For those that don't know, he, cerebral palsy was it? He walked with a limp. He had an arm that came up here. He was forever falling over. But he was always at the prayer meeting. He was always seeking, what can I do for God? Amazing man. The frustration that he must have had wasn't about ability, it was about faithfulness. So what does, what does God see as treasure in our lives? Just a list. It's too long to go into it, but just a list. So, our faithfulness in loving God, our faithfulness in loving neighbours as yourself, our faithfulness in praying and fasting, forgiving, that's a need, that's a difficult one. There was a time that Jesus gave a whole talk and the disciples didn't bat an eyelid and then he said, but you've got to give, forgive, 70 times 70. You know what they say? Lord, give us more faith. We can't cope with, we can cope with everything else. We can't. But giving somebody 70 times 7. Okay. Giving. Sharing the good news. Not denying your faith. Fellowship with other believers. Walking with God. Listening for his voice. And doing what he asks of you. That's what's on his tick box. That's what he's looking for. Someone put it this way. Loving our neighbour, our enemy, the poor, the marginalised, the foreigner, 
that's messy and difficult and costly. Choose hard, take the narrow way, find out what is important to Jesus and make that important to you. So, how do we balance our need for money, because we need money, and its effect on our faith? The Apostle Paul had a good strategy. In Philippians 4, verse 11 and 12, he writes, I have learned in whatever situation to be content. I have learned the secret of facing plenty, and hunger, abundance and need. Or, you're content. Your life was going like that. You would have ended up as a really important man in the Jewish faith. He trained under the right people. He was of the right family. He was a Roman citizen. And now he ends up in prison on a trumped-up trumped star charge, manacled between two Roman soldiers, wanting to go places and tell people about Jesus. He gets shipwrecked three times. He gets 39 lashes five times. He gets stoned. One time, after being shipwrecked, he's helping people by building a fire, and a snake comes out and bites him. How can you be content? He did not focus on what he did not have. He focused on what he did have. I say again, he did not focus on what he did not have, but he focused on what he did have. He had learned to abide in Jesus. So, summing up. Seven pages. No. <laughs> Jesus th sees things differently to you. You have more worth to him than you can ever, ever possibly conceive. He really knows who you are and what you need. In the passage today, he talks about the birds of the air, the lilies in the field, and says, I'm interested then, but I'm far more interested in you and what you need to complete the race I have set before you. Finally, he sets the priority of life. Verse 33. Seek first the kingdom and his righteousness and all things will be added to you. So, a closing challenge. Facing up to the things that make you anxious by learning to trust God. Realize that you have much more worth for God than you think. Realize that treasure in God's eyes is not about finance, power, position, achievements, but abiding in him. I say again, seek first the kingdom and its righteousness. So if that, that has touched you in any way, people that have put curses on you saying you're nothing, you feel insecure because of your perceived value in the community. The prayer team would love to pray with you.